I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy it. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. I'm Jeff, and with me is the interplanetary scientist, Hoy. Hello. Glad to be back. And also on this episode, we are joined once again by gaming and BS star, Brett Blozinski. Hey, well done. Second time around, you got my last name done better, too. That was <laughs> hey, nice. Hey, Brett. Exactly. Well done. <laughs> So if our listeners are wondering why I'm welcoming Brett back and why he's talking about the second time around, we actually recorded this episode a few days ago, but it will have to live in the lost archives because it is completely unintelligible. And Brett is kind enough to return to re-record this to get it out there for all y'all. That's because well, see, <laughs> sorry. I was going to say last time we got together, we were we were so in tune with our Martian senses, we were speaking a totally intergalactic language. It was very difficult for anybody else. Exactly, we were we were on we the were, we were tr- <laughs> we were on the silicon wavelengths. Exactly, we were just trans. We were transcending all. You know, we were no. making our own little pyramids and pooping them out or whatever exactly. it is we did. I don't know. <laughs> I'm embarrassed that it's episode 46, and we've already, this is the second time that we've had to re record an episode. But I will say the first time we had to do it was with Harley Stroh, who was also a great sport about it. And when we were done recording, all three of us agreed that it was even better the second time around. So who knows? Maybe that'll be the case this time, too. Just like, just like whiskey. Hey, you hate it the first time, second time, like, hey, that's not too bad. <laughs> So, Brett, for those who don't listen to Gaming and BS and haven't heard your stories, tell us a little bit about how you got into gaming and how you discovered the Appendix N. Yeah, so let's see here. Back in third grade, a buddy of mine, Todd Thompson, uh, had a sleepover at his house, birthday or something or other. And his older brother, Terry, says, hey, do you guys want to play D&D? And I have no idea what this is. Todd convinces me it's this fun fantasy board game, kind of like The Hobbit. And I'd read The Hobbit because of my mother. My mother's a huge Lord of the Rings fan. So like, okay, great. Sure, let's try this thing. <clears throat> Turns out it's AD&D first edition. And we had a hoot. We we played crazy characters. We fought Demogorgon and Orcus, and we had anti-paladins. We were 25th level. It makes no sense. It was just absolute garbage. But when you're in third grade, it was the best thing ever. <laughs> it was awesome. So from there, then I wanted, I love this thing. And every time we go to Todd's house, that was where we could game because that was the only place that had the books. So I'm like, I want to buy these. So I go to a KB Toys in the mall, which neither thing exists anymore, really. And <laughs> I'm looking at these hardcover books. I'm like, oh, shit, these are expensive. They're like $15 a piece. Oh, my God. You know, I can't afford that. And then I find this box set, this red box, Frank Menster Basic D&D red box. I'm like, oh, this is everything I need in it. I have no concept that eight D&D is different than D&D. So I ended up getting that. I ran games for my mom, my dad, and my sister. Um, had some fun there. <clears throat> then I got in the middle of role playing, and uh, yeah, I've never looked back. This is the uh, this is the longest hobby I've ever had. I've been doing it since third grade, and I've never quit. That's great. Did your mom and your uh, sister stick with it, or did they just kind of humor you? <laughs> no, my dad. My dad is a card player, like Pinochle, you know, Sheepshead, and that type of thing. He loves that stuff. My mom, though, being a Tolkien file, we played. I st- I found my uh, my Middle Earth. The one module we ran where my sister, <clears throat> I played a little NPC just to provide meat for my mom and my sister's 
really cool characters. I was just some grunt Bjorning that just took a lot of hit hit points of damage while they had all the fun. But we we took over this castle. We had all this crap. And I remember drawing in this book. I couldn't find it. I found all the notes, the character sheets and stuff the other day. It was it's just awesome. But they played and they still tell me stories about how much fun they had doing it. And then um the other question, Jeff, around Appendix N, <clears throat> believe it or not, I didn't, I mean, like a lot of people, I assume anyway, you had the first edition AD&D book and you kind of go through it. In the back, you have these appendices with lists of stuff. And by the first time I looked at it, I didn't care about any of that shit because there was no chart. There was no map. There was no monster stat that didn't have anything I needed. So it wasn't until Sean Kelly, my partner at Gaming BS, comes up and says, hey, have you heard about Dungeon Crawl Classics? I'm like, no, what is this? He explains it to me. He says, it's based on Appendix N. What the hell is that? And he looks at me like I have three heads. He explains it to me. I'm like, oh, duh. Then we get Jen Brinkman on the show, Judge Jen, and she runs through. We have two episodes of that. It's actually made it into the reprint of DCC. Our episode is in the podcast to listen to. So nice, it makes me happy. Nice. <clears throat> but anyway, so Jen really like woke me up to like, holy crap, this is cool. I start digging into it, and now I've got two copies of the core rule book and more modules than I'll ever need. And I back Lankmark Kickstarters, and well, there you go. Right, right. And, and now you've heard the Martian Odyssey by Stanley G. Winebound. Under duress. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we do it. We pick the, mo- the person who's the least suited to whatever we were trying to discuss that week. And we say, you're going to read this. <laughs> do you like sci-fi? No, here, read this sci-fi. Well, I said I don't. All right, <laughs> right. I guess. Yeah, it is kind of funny that I picked you and Sean for these two episodes. But I, I knew I wanted to have you both on the show. And I saw that mm-hmm. episode 46 was a Martian Odyssey and episode 47 was Martians Go Home. I was like, that, that's a pretty good theme. We've got some Martian theme here. We can see what Brett and Sean can do with the Martians theme. And... You guys are pros about talking about gaming. You can take any topic and and have a gaming conversation about it. We'll see what we can do. This was some interesting stuff. (laughs) I do have a quick question. So Mm -hmm. I know that you've played a lot of Vampire as well. So from third grade through today, do you think you've spent more hours at the table playing D&D or Vampire? More hours at the table. In the heyday of my vampire campaign, we started in 91 and I ran that for, I ran White Wolf system for 15 years. So <clears throat> for the first part of that, I'd say for the, almost the first, first five years was every Saturday Wow, for like six to eight hours, every Saturday, religiously. I moved to Madison. Let's see. You know, I would almost say they're equal, equal okay. at this point. Cause I played, I played a shit ton of D and D and I still do. I run five E, I run first ed, yeah. I run all sorts of stuff. But I would say they're pretty equal. We really, I am so burned out on vampires right now. I just don't care. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh, Brad, you liked vampire. Here's the, the new edition of vampire. Don't care. What, don't care. What is the top of your vampire appendix in? If you were to recommend top a my, vampire book for somebody, what would you recommend they read? I have, oh, it's sitting across the room for me. It's a complete vampire compendium it's like a history and mythology about different types of vampires across the world i'm gonna have to that's it, i'm gonna find it hang on be right back <laughs> i have two votes while brett's looking i would say <laughs> there it is all right i was totally poorly scripted um go. it is vampire the complete guide to world of the undead wow by by manuela dun maschetti oh it's not by Anne rice no, it is not. <laughs> I, uh, I I tried to read Anne Rice. God bless her. I tried, 
But oh my god, that hurt. That was like the literary equivalent of being waterboarded <laughs> to me. Thirteen year old Jeff with his dyed black hair loved it. Oh, <laughs> the reason I played vampire because the girl I was dating at the time, Cat, she was huge into that, and uh, another guy who was also interested in her was also reading that stuff. I'm like, oh, uh, I, I can top that dude. I'll run the game. There you go. <laughs> so uh, yeah. I. I have- I have two votes for vampire books besides Dracula, which is, you know, on its own level. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. I would say uh, Fever Dream by George R.R. R. Martin. Oh. And um, which is uh, sort of, I think at the same time that Anne Rice, it's basically a vampire traveling up and down the, the uh, Mississippi on a riverboat looking for the vampire that created him. Um, and then Anno Dracula by Kim Newman, who is also known as Jack Yeovil, who wrote the Drakenfells and some of the other books for uh, Games Workshop at the beginning of the sort of Warhammer fantasy fiction. Very okay. Cool. Yeah. You know, you know. Speaking of the other one, I throw out there just because I loved. I started running vampire hunting games because I got sick of vampires. Wanted to murder them instead. Um, Steakley's Vampires, sure, which sure. Became, which became a horrible movie, right? Which, but the book was is just this. It's awesome, right? With the uh, James it, 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 Woods it, it, in the movie, even John Carpenter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the description in the book, I'll never forget, was like, he, you know, Jack Crow swings a crossbow the size of a swing set. It was everything is like this wonderful hyperbole statements <laughs> that you just, uh, they're just so great. Uh, I love that book. That book's fun. That was a lot of fun. And he only wrote one other book, Armor, and then he just sort of yep. just fell off the map. Yeah. Well, yeah, Armor's good too. Getting us back to the topic at hand, because I take full responsibility for taking us off topic here. Uh, we are discussing Stanley G. Weinbaum's A Martian Odyssey. And Brett, let our audience know which version of the book you're working with. So what I had to do because of my incredibly crappy work schedule and traveling, I ended up grabbing some three different of the stories in audiobook on a bridge format. So I grabbed the Martian Odyssey, the Lotus Eaters, the Adaptive Ultimate. Ahoy was kind enough to send me a link to some of the other ones I wasn't able to get to, but this week has kicked my ass and I've been able to do nothing but work teach taekwondo and be here. So <laughs> I haven't, I didn't get to the ones I, I, I didn't get to them before and I still failed to get to them, but we'll, we'll fake um, it. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll totally, fake. I was an English major in college, so I will pretend like I've read them and you won't even know the difference. <laughs> <laughs> and Hoy, which version are you working with? I went to the uh, Australian site, Roy Goshan's library, also known as freeread.com.au, which has a ton of fantasy, science fiction, adventure fiction that's in the public domain. So the, all of Weinbaum's uh, short stories are in the public domain in Australia. And so that's what I'm working off of. Very cool. And I'm reading the 1972 Lancer paperback, and it's got this pretty groovy, psychedelic Bob Pepper cover. There's a woman's face in a green, misty sphere, and she's surrounded by what looks like maybe a dragon and a hand in space and a little spaceship and it's all very cool and on the back we've got a gigantic tweel um, or at least just the word tweel in green letters um, and they talk a little bit about tweel on the back i'm not quite sure why tweel is the thing that they're so obsessed with uh in terms of marketing this book but that's the version that i'm working with so real quick before we go on into the library we're also going to look at our hygaxian word of the day Cacinate. Cacinate. And cacinate means to laugh loudly. And if you listen to any of the podcasts I'm on, you know that I am quite prone to cacinating. And <laughs> cacinate can be found on page 82. 
And it says, Ham agreed emphatically, the more so as a viciously cast rock suddenly chipped glittering particles from an icy spire a dozen paces away. He twisted his head, sending the beams of his helmet lamps angling over the plain, and a single shrill cacination drifted out in the dark. So that's the word cacinate. So A Martian Odyssey is a collection of five stories. We've got the first story, A Martian Odyssey. The second one is the Adaptive uh, Ultimate. The third is the Lotus Eaters, and these are the three that Brett has read. The fourth is Proteus Island. And then there's a very brief one at the very end of the book called The Brink of Infinity, uh, which Hoy and I have also read. Brett, of the three that you had, you had the opportunity to check out, what did you think of them? And did you have a favorite? So the I started with A Martian Odyssey, and about a quarter into it, I figured Jeff hates me. <laughs> there's, 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 there's no reason for anyone to do this to me. What have I done wrong? Did I, did I slight him at Gary Khan? Did I, I not do something? Um, <laughs> it took a bit, but I, I uh, kind of got past that. Um, my favorite, honestly, is the Adaptive Ultimate was really interesting. I had, I, and the reason being, it gave me more gamer ideas. We can talk about that when we get to the gaming piece. But that one struck a chord with me more so from a gaming perspective. I struggle a little bit with the others because they weren't as immediately gameable to me for whatever reason. And um, But the Lotus Eaters would be my second. And the Martian Odyssey was just a little too Dr. Susie. Right, me, right, but. right. Twill, who is the the creature that's mentioned on the back of the cover is almost exactly a Dr. Seuss sort of like ostrichy kind of creature jumps up 150 feet in the air, buries his beak in the ground for every move that he makes. It's just, yeah, it's like some, uh, you know, perverse Martian lawn dart exactly. type of motion. <laughs> lawn, dart, no sense. lawn dart combined with a, uh, you know, lawn flamingo, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which would be a game I would have played in college perhaps, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> This is odd. And there would have to be a wading pool and tequila involved as well. Yes, yes, <laughs> much tequila. <laughs> yes, Space Ostrich, The Awakening, the new World of Darkness uh, campaign setting. <laughs> <laughs> so, Hoy, of these stories, which one was your favorite? Um, I would probably lean towards the Lotus Eaters, um, but to give it a little context, it's actually the second story featuring those characters, and the first one was Parasite Planet which is how the protagonists meet up. Um, and since I had the domain copy, I decided to read that story as well. So I think together, those to me, because it was an interplay, it felt very much like a 30 screwball comedy. It's basically this guy who's an engineer who's kind of poaching plant pods on the sort of habitable strip of Mars. And he meets this very sort of initially snooty. Uh, she claims she's English, but she's born on Mars, English biologists. And they, they meet Venus. Venus. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, they meet cute and she hates him. And then of course they end up getting married. And so the second story is them exploring the dark side of uh, Venus, um, which is where the, the whole cacination came from. And so I really enjoyed that one. Had that sort of interplay. She's, um, you know, I mean, it's still thirties attitudes, but she has that thirties screwball uh, um, heroin feel. So she gives as good as she gets. So I, I enjoyed that a lot. So Hoy, when we read the best of Stanley G Weinbaum, which is going to be episode 94, so probably about two years from now. Do you think, okay, so four of these five stories are also featured in the best of Stanley G. Weinbaum. Did you enjoy these enough that that you predict in two years you will be rereading them when we do the best of Stanley G. Weinbaum? Or do you predict that you will just kind of like 
just read the new the new content. Hmm. Um, my memory is not as good as it is it used to be, so I probably will have to reread and then say, did I hate that the first time I read it, or did I like it the first time I read it? <laughs> and then you'll have to listen to this episode to make sure that your opinions are consistent. Right, right. Well, no, I reserve the right to change my mind. Um, oh, not, not on the internet, man. You, you said it once on the internet. You can right, never right, change right, my mind. Right, right, exactly. I've, what's your wrong once? You're yes. wrong forever. Just get off the internet. You're canceled. You'll exactly. be permanently branded a flip-flopper. Right. Oh, right. Terrible, 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 terrible fate. You don't want to be an appendix and flip-flopper. Yeah, no. Never, <laughs> never. <laughs> um, but I do think the also uh, that book also has the sequel to The Martian Odyssey, which I think actually makes The Martian Odyssey um, feel more like a prologue in this case, which is The Valley of Dreams. Um, so I think hmm. that will be a good reason to read those two stories together. It's a weird selection, that the fact that you left out the first story in one case and the second story in the other case. But I know the Lancer notoriously had uh, very bad bindings. And so they maybe just wanted to keep the volume down to a certain thickness, you know, or maybe they were in it and <laughs> the pages just fell out. Right. <laughs> it's possible too. <laughs> I mean, I know some of the older publications too, depending, I don't know. I can't remember. We talked about this last time um, where Stanley, some of his stuff was published, but I know sometimes if it published under like astounding versus amazing and you could get into rights issues when you actually try to put them into books. Right. So this one, which is the second story, which is published by a different arm or a, or a magazine was bought by somebody else. And that could get all buggered up too. Right, right. So it's hard. It's always, I don't know the history of that component, but I could see where they would accidentally on purpose be split simply due to right, right. copyright laws right. of some sort. We, we, we're definitely forgetting about that context because that would have been not that, f I mean, he had died quite young in the thirties, uh, Weinbaum, mm -hmm. but that would still only have been 25, 30 years after he died. So everything, yes, as you say, would still be under copyright. Whereas now we're talking about all these stories being in the domain. So that's definitely a potentially missing context that we're not thinking about here. One question that I, I asked you last time, Brett, that I'm going to go ahead and ask you again, just because I, I enjoyed the answer and I think it's a fun thing to share, is, you know, reading these stories, one of the things that was kind of weird for me to experience was how our main characters is kind of running around in a lot of these these stories, just kind of shooting any animals they see, uh, shooting any any unique life any, any unique life forms they came across. And I know you didn't read Proteus Island, but it was especially funny because, like, in Proteus Island every single creature on there is a completely unique individual creature. And then even in the Lotus Eaters, we've got our, our biologist and she's walking around and she's just like ripping up these like, these like animal plant creatures from the ground and they're like squealing and bleeding and she doesn't care. She's just like shoving them into her bag and like taking samples. <laughs> and, I know, <laughs> and I know that you're an avid hunter. So I'm curious, yeah. what was your take on, on those moments that the characters are doing things like that in the story? Well, one, <laughs> it reminds me very much of the, uh, honestly, of the kind of the whole at the time theory uh, that a lot of people had this kind of the, the cliche is like the great white hunter, the, the person, you know, this European white dude who goes somewhere and just kills everything to fill his bag says, I have killed one of every planes game. I've killed the elephant. I've killed the tigers and so on. And the other thing that's interesting, it also reminded me oddly enough of uh, Audubon, can't remember his first name. This is one of the Auto Autobahn bird guidebooks you have that are out there. These gorgeous colors. We got this because Autobahn shot the fuck out of every bird he could <laughs> so we could draw them and paint them. They're all dead. He killed every one of those birds because it was the only way to get them to hold still, right? And that was, and at the time, that was like, that's totally fine. I need to see it. I'm going to kill it, drag it in. You know, you think Mary Curie. I wonder what uranium tastes like. The reason I know that is because she was licking this stuff to find. I mean, she was badass. But, <laughs> you know, these people tasting and figuring out the consistent. They had no concept of safety or 
you know, the, I mean, the, the theories of evolution and what should live and what shouldn't and conservation as we know it today doesn't really, did not really exist back then. Mm-hmm. You know, we were the people that hunted the buffalo damn near to extinction and so on. Um, in modern day, you know, if I were to encounter something like that and you see this environment where there's only one left, well, I'll hang my bow, put my gun away. I'd, I'd give up hunting to, to make sure that we had, you know, habitat and all that stuff. So, I think it was, it's hilarious to hear that stuff because I'm like, wow, you, you would never do that today. <laughs> right. That's the last rhino. Bang. <laughs> right. you dick. What kind of an asshole would do that? You know, right. what if That's you were the, w- the first person into a situation like some of these characters were, and you were thinking about how to take samples or do something like that, you know, given maybe the sort of technology that they had. Which yeah, that's the the other piece that, you know, how else could they get samples? I don't know how they could do it. They don't have DNA or at least, you know, and they're writing science fiction and they're only trying to extrapolate what they know. I don't even know how else you'd get that stuff. Nowadays, you're like, oh, yeah, I went in, I took like two cells out of a thing or just a very small fragment. Right, I could right. discern all this stuff back then. Like, I need the whole damn body. Right, you know, right. Or, or, got it. <laughs> or we'll just even look for the poop of this creature and we'll take a little scoop of that first before we do anything else. And then we'll. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no one, I mean, before that, you didn't radio collar wolves, you didn't check scat, you killed one, gutted it, and found out what it was exactly. eating. That's right. how you figure that stuff out, you know. And holy, they're scientists. It's not poop, it's spore. Spore. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, coprolites if it's fossilized, right? So. Yes. <laughs> but that's one of the things that's funny about reading some of these stories is, you know, a, a lot of the times when we're reading these stories that were written in the 1910s, the 1930s, the 1960s, or whatever, a lot of the kind of rifts between kind of modern sensibilities and the sensibilities of that time, a lot of them can be jarring because a lot of them is like, you know, old school views on race or gender things like that. But yep. also just like things like this are just kind of, these can be kind of more entertaining um, kind of differences in how we view the world and write fiction. Cause like Lord Dunsany, for example, in the King of Elfland's daughter, the, one of the main characters is like desperate to hunt down a unicorn and chop off its head and uh, put it on its wall. And th- nowhere in the story is that, is that shown as a potentially problematic thing? Like, but also Lord Denzini was, as you were saying, like a, like a a hunter of great game. Like he was the kind of person who he was traveling Mm -hmm. around and he'd shoot a zebra and he'd shoot a lion. And that was totally accepted culturally at that time. Yeah, I mean, even if you look at Adaptive Ultimate, right, we're talking about they have this glands, because glands solve all problems we learned from Adaptive Ultimate, <laughs> but they have this concoction they want to inject in this woman who's dying of tuberculosis. She has TB, so she's slowly liquefying and dying. And they're like, you know what, we'll just experiment on this girl. So, honey, do you think it's okay? Burble, burble. Sounds good to me. And they stick her, right? I mean, she she's on her deathbed. There's no family there. There's no doctor. There's no lawyer. There's no one that says, hang on a second. You're sticking an experimental, non-government approved serum into a dying woman hoping it might cure her. What's it going to do? I don't know. Let's just see. <laughs> you can't do that now. I mean, may, maybe in parts of Russia, you can get away with that, but you sure as hell can't do it here. You know? So, I mean, speaking of just social, that was, that was even, that to me was almost more jarring. The, the shooting stuff like, yeah, I kind of, yeah, they used to do that, but then I'm like, holy crap, this is a, this is a person. You just go, yep, I'll stick her full of this stuff and see what it does. Holy cow. <laughs> now, was it, was any of, um, let me rephrase that, your experience of reading this story, was any of it kind of uncomfortable at all or? the? Let's see here. I liked, the thing in the Lotus Eaters that I liked a lot 
And to kind of echo Hoy's component is both characters, male and female, were equals. They treated, they had friendly banter back and forth where one was smart, the other one had a failing and something like, hey, you know this, I'm just the engineer, you're the biologist, you're, I'm just a biologist, you're the engineer. And it wasn't, I didn't get, I felt the ribbing was, you know, husband, wife on, oddly enough, to go on the honeymoon to the dark side of Venus to pick up, you know, animal plants. But they they were very much equal, which I thought was really yeah. cool. In the Adaptive Ultimate, it was a little creepier insofar as, <clears throat> you know, they stick this poor woman. I, I couldn't tell from the description if they were trying to say she was Hispanic the way they described her or if they were just saying something with the coloration. They, they were spent a lot of time describing what she'd look like. So I'm like, are they trying to say they're taking a non-white person because it's okay to uh, – to experiment on them. But then as they go along, they, I think, I think Weinbaum wrote that to say, Hey, now look what happened. She's adapting and she's becoming more beautiful. And now she has this beautiful platinum hair and her skin changes tones as necessary. And that was, that was almost uncomfortable to me in the fact that it's, that shit's true now, right? If you look a certain way and you're glamorous enough and you're seen in the public eye as this wonderful thing, the shit you can get away with, she murders a guy. Right. And she's too beautiful to go to jail. I mean, that's, and it like, yep, she's, uh, she's adapted to the fact that this society and this culture will not punish her because she's gorgeous. Yeah. And that's kind of an right. interesting take on that too, though, because were the, adi- were the adaptations solely physical? Cause they weren't, cause she was also able to adapt to make the judge have a favorable view of her. And I know a friend of mine grew up in Hialeah, which is a very, very Cuban part of um, Southern Florida, and he's Cuban, and he's very, very light-skinned. And he tells me that, like, in, the, in, in his community growing up, if you have light skin, that's absolutely this, like, very, very favorable thing. And when, when a baby's being born in his community – like oh I hope she I hope he has light skin or I hope she has light skin and and he talks about how like it just wow. really kind of grosses him out but like culturally in some places and certainly in 1930s America if you're going to go in front of a judge after just having murdered a man for his wallet which is what she does uh, you're probably going to mm-hmm. want to look as white as possible as pretty as possible and as feminine as possible because <laughs> yep. that's going to be what gets you off mm-hmm. yeah she she didn't come up being you know. A sickly TB victim, you know, with a flat chest and no butt. She comes in this voluptual, voluptuous, you know, gorgeous woman with you know all the very stereotypical what we see <laughs> yeah. is beautiful, right? right? I mean that that they I don't I hate to say classic. I'm going to sound like a jerk, but it's these it's these um, bizarre levels and standards that you know are just dumb anyway. But you you read that and I'm like, apart from the weird approach to science because you know he's guessing that it's a glandular concoction that'll make you do this or that you could even do such a thing to a person the rest of the story is could happen now if you right. took that story rewrote it with more a more modern science piece that's an hbo yeah. show right that's a net that's a that's a short story on netflix right. I mean, it literally is she's perfectly adapted to the society which hasn't changed as much as we think right she's literally um She's incredible. She doesn't become well. She doesn't become Superman. She is perfectly adapted socially, right? She starts dating the Secretary of the Treasury, who is the most eligible bachelor in Washington. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and I think you had made the point. Like, what if she had, this had happened in the Soviet Union? What what kind of an adaptation would she have made there? Right? She might have been like the perfect commissar over there, right? 
Now, one thing that I had read that neither one of you guys did is my my copy of the book has this Sam Moskowitz introduction called The Wonder of Weinbaum. And in it, Sam Moskowitz mentions that Stanley G. Weinbaum died at the age of 33 of lung cancer, which was not something that I was aware of. Wow. And he wrote this story at the age of 32. And this was the first, or this story being The Martian Odyssey. Um, the Martian Odyssey was the first of his published works, and that was written only a year before he died of lung cancer. And you know, it really flavor it really flavored my flavored is not the word I'm looking for. Um, colored, but it really thank you. Colored, it really colored my experience of these story of, of reading these stories because in a Martian Odyssey we've got these. Um, a Martian Odyssey ends with him finding this like cure for cancer on Mars. Yes. And the adaptive yep. ultimate is about this woman who's dying and they managed to save her at the last minute with this like strange ser serum. And then the Lotus eaters are about these like strange, very, very alien creatures who live on Venus who know that they're going extinct and are just kind of, they're, they're, they're fine with it. Um, so in, in a way that this, this story might be about like finding acceptance and death yeah, this is like a like a sci-fi journey. If you look at that, can you apply a twelve steps of acceptance? Right. You know, denial, yeah. anger, must fix, and you know, lotus eaters. You know what? Sometimes you die. Right. And knowing all of that, reading these stories beforehand really made these stories have a very kind of sad undertone for me. Like there were moments where I was just like, "Oh man, this poor dude must have known that he was dying and was like really like working through." whatever he was going through in his sci-fi. That's a good point. That's interesting. And I, I mean, I joked at the beginning, like I hated Jeff for making me read this, but you know, you, you look back at it and you try to say, okay, they wrote this for a reason. Sometimes the reason is as simple as Robert E. Howard was, was a very um, cash driven author. I need to crank out a thing to get the cover story because I need, I need the money. Right. So he's a very commercial writer. Um, I don't know. And hearing that makes you think Weinbaum was doing this not only because desire to be published and paid and so forth, but also perhaps as a, an exploratory, you know, psychological or philosophical in, in, uh, introspection of himself. And then, so even for me, then when I go back and I read like the Martian Odyssey, it feels so goofy. Like there's this twill is so weird. You got these monsters rolling wheelbarrows around that all they can do is repeat what, what is said to them. Like, uh, what, what was it? Um, hi, how are you? Ouch. Cause right. he hurt himself at one point. That's all they say. Um, <clears throat> and even the Lotus eaters, you know, now I'm thinking about it. So the Lotus eaters are these plant creatures and they can respond to you only with words you give them. They, they understand context and subcontext, but you have to give them all these words. And what you just said, Jeff makes, you know, if you take it another level, do we go as deep as to say, he has no answers. He's looking for somebody to get, and he can't. All he can get back from doctors and everybody else are words that he knows. This is it. They're just going to parrot crap back and forth to him. There's no actual answer. What's the meaning of this? Can you solve it? No, you're going to die. Right. You know, it's this. It's almost this bizarre stalemate of striving that you, you you're not going to get it, dude. Right. I think, God, now I'm depressed. <laughs> well, I, I think there is, um, uh, uh, I wouldn't call it a countervailing current, but an interesting thing is it's kind of maybe a little bit hard to see from our perspective because now it's 80 years ago that he wrote, but he kind of, by reputation, Weinbaum's story sort of marked a dividing line between sort of the sort of sword and planet, pure adventure, sort of burrows, other people, 
prior to that and sort of the slow evolution towards sort of plausible hard science fiction. Um, Tweel, as, ridic- as ridiculous as he appears, was the first attempt to create an alien who is as intelligent as a human being, but completely alien at the same time, at least according to sort of this mandate that um, John W. Campbell was uh, uh, pushing for a standing magazine to show me an alien that's like they can, as smart as a human, but it's not a human. You know? Well, everything mm-hmm. in the Martian Odyssey is obviously alien. I mean, you have the one weird creature that's silicon-based that eats a bunch of stuff, poops out bricks, makes a pyramid, and then erupts out of that, pops out these weird little bubbles that kind of seeds itself. And that's what it does. It's no understanding. It's just what it does. <clears throat> There's the – what was the the monster there that – your dreams or your the visions? The dream beast. The dream beast right. that almost eats Tweel. And and so forth. They're very alien. The dream beast is darn near Cthulian in its approach, like that Lovecraftian. I don't know what weird tentacle dark monstrosity this is, or why it behaves in such a horrendous fashion. But everything on that planet is clearly alien. There's nothing there that in in the Lotus Eaters, they're alien creatures, right? the lotus eaters themselves these plants but they're communicating in some way that makes you you know you can you can see why you you'd, why you would put human emotions into them nothing in a martian odyssey you can uh, connect to even Tweel was you know no 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 yes yes no no and just that he had very limited vocabulary didn't understand right. hardly anything it seemed but so foreign and so weird they like you read that and you I feel like absolutely as an outsider, if I was in on that planet with that landscape, you'd feel completely alone and alienated. You'd have no way to connect with anything because it's thought processes are so fucking different than what we are. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the exploration element is very strong in most of the stories we read, right? It, trying to make sense of an environment and the, the early D and D sort of privileged that more so than sort of the current flavor of say five E, which is much more about overcoming specific challenges in opposition. So I think that, I think there's a lot of that. Um, I think that there's attempt to create an alien but somewhat plausible ecology and environment. Um, I think um, Brett, you had mentioned the uh, ecology of articles, like the ecology oh, yeah. of the piercer and stuff like that. Yeah, that 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 whole approach of reading. Uh, you know, we talked about this previous episode, um, seed non-existent episode. Um, the you know the ecology of the monsters, and every time you know Weinbaum and anybody in this era is creating something, they try to give you the reason for it, even if the reason is this is unknown or no one yet knows, which was is everywhere in early gaming, right? Unknown by anyone, no one has yet seen it and come back. Those broad <laughs> statements are all over the place, and uh, I think. <laughs> Yeah, the exploration. The when I read a Martian Odyssey in the Lotus Eaters, I was trying to look at it from a gaming perspective. What came to me was the exploration and the feeling that this was like a hex crawl, you know, like a, a sci-fi hex crawl across this landscape to see what's in the next place. These folks are there for a purpose to find something, and along the way, Lord knows what they'll run into. Yeah, there's definitely a quest structure in, I think, yeah, every single one, every, every single one of the stories, there was like a quest structure, right? Uh, or a, an environment that they had to change, the, even the Brink of Infinity, uh, which you didn't read. It's, it's about this guy who's basically kidnapped and forced to solve a math problem. But that's almost like a D&D, you know, trying to figure out a trap situation, right? I would be so fucking dead, dude. I was an English and philosophy <laughs> major in college. I would die. <laughs> I, I'd be I'd be dead about three minutes before you, so. <laughs> 
hoy, lo, conk. There they go. And that's all they got. And it's funny, too, because actually between listening, between recording the last version of this episode and the current version of this episode, I listened to the puzzles episode of Gaming and BS. And you guys were talking a great deal about how, or like, or you, Brett, specifically, were talking about how in your in your D and D game you really shouldn't put puzzles in there that only have one answer. And it just really reminded me of this last story because, like, if you the, the, this whole adventure would have been like, I've kidnapped you and you cannot leave until you give me the answer to this dumb math equation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I don't. Know, that's, that's not much of a game. No, my players would my players would flip the table. That's just what happened. <laughs> and and we play on top of a large pool table in somebody's basement, right, so right. That, that's a heavy item. I get beaten with it. Right, right. I, I did still like the villain in Brink of Infinity. Uh, you know, as, as twisted as he was he still had some sort of motivation so that was uh, you know um oh sure oh sure yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was was, was a, the villain was that story. villain I'm, I'm sorry i'm sorry oh, so i was just saying it wasn't a bad story it just would have been a bad adventure yeah exactly. yes <laughs> is that which is actually an interesting point is that sometimes stories need to be adapted for gaming and not taken sometimes one for one because right no way to work so was the villain in that story was he an alien or was he human he was a human he was an engineer who was crippled in an explosion because the mathematician who was supposed to solve the equation about, you know, certain technology he was working with had, you know, carried a, carried a number or, you know, moved the decimal point by one. So he was crippled. So he was trying to re- take his revenge on all mathematicians. So he would just say, Hey, are you a good mathematician? Come up to my house. I have a, a, something I want to talk to you about. And then he would lock them in this room and say, if you can't solve this problem within X period of time, you'll be killed. So well, that's, that's like a bizarre version of like the girl who kicked the hornet's nest. It's like the, the, the guy who beat a man with an abacus or something. I don't know how to do that one. Exactly. That's weird. Okay. That's a, that's a bizarre murder kink. Mathematicians. Got them. Okay. That's weird. That's weird. Yeah, it's very like a Vincent Price 1970s horror movie. I feel like The Abominable Dr. Fives and Madhouse and a lot of those movies all had the same basic premise, which is I'm mad at this particular profession. So I'm right. going to one by one murder professionals in that profession until I get my revenge. Right. Except this is like yes. a super nerdy version of that, right? So it's just mad. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious, Brett, if you wanted to do a World of Darkness adaptive ultimate, how well do you feel like that would go? I think that would actually go really well because, <laughs> excuse me, you already have mage, you've got lycanthropes, right? You've got your werewolves and the werewolves introduced all the other different were creatures and stuff. And you've got vampires, you've got La Sombra, you've got your Zemisi who can change shape and um, shift their bodies into all this stuff. This concept of a super being among super beings, right? This thing that can adapt and move. It'd actually be more fun to have that be like a bizarre hunter of the supernatural, Ooh. right? You're, you're, yeah. you're in Chicago. You're in New York. You're Sabah clan. You're just kicking ass. You're rolling around doing whatever. The storyteller's like, I don't know what to do. I know what to do. Here, fight this. You know, you come, you're like, oh, it's clearly one of these. You you stick stick it with a wooden stake. It walks away. You shoot it with silver. It doesn't care. All right. Uh, you try to cut its head off. It just picks its head up and puts it back on. Oh, my God. You know, what do I do to stop this thing? It's it's in the line of the puzzle, right? How do I solve this problem? It becomes a thing that it's like this unstoppable social and potentially physical killing machine. It integrates itself in 
in a vampire game, the adaptive ultimate would be the thing that comes in, makes friends with the mayor and the governor. And next thing you know, you wake up at noon because your haven has been turned into a fucking parking lot, right, right. you know, <clears throat> and you're in your, in your little, your little gangrel underground hidey place. Yeah. That's been ripped up by a, by a backhoe. Hello, Mr. Sun. Right. There you go, buddy. Cause you didn't solve that problem. So I, it would be a badass, like an ultimate adaptive badass. I can you know? see that. As you, a, just, uh, you, you gotta hunt the fucker down and try to find something to use against it. Right. I can see that being a total slow burn where um, the adaptations are only slowly revealed because each time you attempt something that adapts, right? And it can almost see like that being a human who maybe she injected herself with some Simitri blood and what's the really beautiful clan again in... Um, oh, the uh, Toreadors. The Toreadors, right? Because yeah. it's some combination of like Toreador and Simitri uh, blood. It's all she, coming back to me now. Right, right. So, <laughs> so I could see that happening. And, and like, as you, as you say, slow burn because she would always be like the the uh, villain behind the villain, right? The, the yeah, because the doctors in that story only recognize the drastic changes because they caused it and knew what it started as. They knew the plain, boring, almost dead start, and then this crazy insanity. And everyone else went, oh, meteoric rise and social, this is just amazing. And all the gospel columns think this is awesome. Where <clears throat> the player characters in that World of Darkness would be like, okay, my players, and he'd be like, all right, I look at every video. Does she show up on video? No, but you notice somebody oh, similar, make a couple of die rolls. Oh, wait a minute. It's the same person, but she has blonde hair. Now she has dark hair. Now she's got silver eyes. Now she's got red eyes. What the fuck is this? You know, and this is only recorded be... an hour previously. Exactly. Yeah. It would just be these weird, you know, you see the big board and the yarn being drawn back and forth and some crazy guy <laughs> chain smoking cigarettes. It's the same woman. Right. I know, and no one believes him, you know. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so if you guys could take one monster from any of these stories and transplant it into your Dungeons and Dragons game, which monster or creature are you bringing with you? Hmm, that's a good one. So the adaptive ultimate is so um, doppelganger. I'm like, I already have that, right? I've okay. got doppelgangers. Yeah, it's D &D. basically an invulnerable doppelganger. Yeah, so I could just take a doppelganger and depending what version is, just slap a vampire skin on her and, hey, then I'm back to my world of darkness. Um, the Lotus Eaters would be interesting because they are so movable, right? They're like this wonderful thing. You're on a hex crawl. You're going somewhere. I could plant them anywhere. They could be in a dungeon. They could be outside. They could be in the mountains. They could be this little side quest weirdness. And it'd be a great place for the characters to get a clue <laughs> mm -hmm. of some kind. <laughs> sometimes I get a fucking clue, but sometimes it would be, it could be a really interesting thing in that space, or they have the spores they give off or some cure for something or other. But I think they would be pretty interesting. If I drop Tweel in, my, my players would be like, what is that thing? <laughs> perhaps even they are the quest because they know everything. So that's perhaps, true. Perhaps there's some really esoteric piece of knowledge that you need, and your quest is to find the Lotus Eaters to get that information from them. Yeah, I think well, we said it last. It was like a vegetable version of the Oracle of Delphi. Mm -hmm. Yeah, living somewhere, and you have to go there and talk to the uh, talk to the Brussels sprouts and get your knowledge. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> How about you, Hoy? What are you bringing with you? Hmm. Um. I would almost say the the trioptes from the same story, which are the yeah. sort of you know the ones who are flinging all the rocks at them, because mm -hmm. they're they're not particularly powerful. They're sort of humanoids, except they have three eyes, um, but they're just incredibly malicious, and they keep on chucking rocks at our protagonists and calculating. Um, 
and caffeinating. Um, but I, I could see that, or at least taking the idea, and, and people have talked about this in the past, of using sort of these low-powered humanoids um, in your D&D or fantasy game, but making them a viable enemy because of them having a certain intelligence. They're using their environment because they never stick around in one spot, right? They throw the rocks and they dash off some other place, right? Um, mm-hmm. They try to break the lights that are on the suits of our, our protagonists, right? Because they don't like the light. Um, and then at one point, as you mentioned, Brett, that they had the um, they had the lights pointing in all directions, but they, their lights were broken, and so they had to sort of go back to back and facing each other. Or actually, Ham had to carry his wife so that her her lights were facing backwards. So, what about you, Jeff? Well, and I, my answer is going to tie in kind of nicely to Brett's discussion about the ecology of the. Is that I really one thing I liked about Tweel, and I wouldn't necessarily take Tweel. But one thing I like about Tweel is he does this cool thing where when he sticks his head in the sand like an ostrich, the way he kind of sticks his body up, he, he's able to make himself look like he's a plant. This is a way that this is a defense mechanism they have that, so that while they're sleeping, they just fit in with the vegetation. And I'm also thinking about how in the first Pellucidar story at the world, at the Earth's core, our main protagonist runs into this giant herbivore that's going to kill it just because, like, it's, even though it's not a carnivore, you know, it's trying to protect itself. So I think it might be kind of cool to have your adventurers traveling to this place where they come across all these weird plants, and if they start messing with these plants, even though, even though these things are herbivores, the reason why they're not, they're not actually plants, these are actually mammals whose heads are in the ground, but the reason their heads are in the ground is they're trying to protect themselves. So as soon as they start messing with these plants, suddenly all these things like plop out and start, start attacking them. I think that can be kind of fun. Right, you know, right. the cool thing too is Twill's a tool. Twill had a gun. Right. He had a gun and a backpack, so, a little... Uh, so we think about that. Twill, as goofy as he is and whatever is, you know, you know Jim Henson workshop approach here, he's... he's <laughs> they make guns, Charger right? Charger yeah, Charger. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, he's he's covered in midichlorians. I don't know what happened. Um, so anyway, he uh, he makes guns, or he gets them from somewhere, right? So we never really. This just hit me, right? So our, our hero in that one goes, yeah, he's got some weird gun that shoots stuff. I looked at it. It's kind of kind of works like this. Where the fuck did Twill get that gun? <laughs> so he's a tool user, or they can make guns, and um, he's not afraid to use it. He shoots crap. Right. So I, I like that idea, Jeff. Like, oh, it's just it's um it's not a simple um what do I, how do I do this? It's not a simple rural creature or simple like the uh like the triops, like, oh, it's just an animal, it's got animal cunning. No, this thing's fucking smart. Right. It, right. It's operating in a different level of smart, right? Where this would be a thing that would let you mess around with <clears throat> you know, one of them who had the most hit point, they would strategically plant their bodies throughout this stuff to, you know, everything that they did would be very smart, very intelligent. They would probably have traps. They would probably have all sorts of, they would have their own weapons. And even in a and d scenario, these, they're tool users very clearly mm-hmm. and complicated tools. Hell, you could make these guys spellcasters if they can build weapons and they have an intelligence beyond what weird, you know, powers do they channel? Right, right. That could be kind of cool. And we never really find out, at least in this story, where where he's going. You know, Jarvis encounters him because he's being sort of tangled up by one of those dream beasts. And then Tweel decides to follow Jarvis out of, I guess, apparently a sense of gratitude for being saved, but ends up saving Jarvis a number of times also. Yes. Um, but even so, even with this sort of 
connection, we still never find out what Tweel is thinking because Tweel is only ever able to sort of parrot back seven words, you know, to Jarvis. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's completely contextual, even when he's using those seven words. Um, it could maybe, I think that would be an interesting challenge. Um, a lot of times we sort of hand wave the ability to communicate with intelligent creatures in our D&D games. Oh yeah, you all speak common. But it would be interesting to have a clearly intelligent creature, not necessarily an enemy, but a clearly intelligent creature that you're interacting with, but that you can't actually verbally communicate with. You know that the conversation he had, and later on Jarvis is explaining to his captain and the other and the other folks on the on the ship is to, oh, it sounds like a dumb damn animal. No, actually, it's pretty smart. Here's what I figured out. It reminds me of that. You know, you you come to two doors. If you've seen Labyrinth, you know, one of us always tells the truth, the other one always tells a lie, and you have to sort that puzzle out, that riddle. His entire mode of speech is a riddle, right? Because once you understand, okay, no, no, no means yes no yes which means that it, you could get <laughs> like in this mobius strip of bizarre you know trying to wrap your brain around it and i could see that happening way where my my players are like okay i got it three knows mean this and you as a gamer is like i'm making this shit up i don't know what the fuck is going on you know <laughs> and you're like all right sure guys sure you think you got it and they run off and then they die or they run off and craziness ensues oh man i thought it was three knows meant yes damn it damn it you know that could be crazy well, I guess crazy. sometimes the players come up with much better answers than the ones that we had, and then you just have to like give it to them without ever letting you know that they gave it to them. It's like, yeah, that's a great idea. You know? I can't like, believe how smart you are. You guys figured that out. It took the last group an hour. You're brilliant. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that would, uh, that would be a lot of fun. And, and um, yeah, having creatures that sort of just have their own agendas, and they're not necessarily antagonists or even allies, except when it sort of intersects with intersects with something that the player characters are doing that you know are in parallel for a period of time and so that would be fun you know you you run into the slug men in yun suin or you know even elves in your classic D game okay well they'll give you uh they'll give you a magic bow just to get you out of their hair all right see you later right yeah <laughs> i like it so but what other uh aspects do you think are particularly gameable in terms of uh the fiction that you've seen here in terms of in Hmm. The environments that are being created, the sort of I think, the overall I think, vibe. I think the the overall exploration vibe really gets me. You know, now when we talk about it, which is one of the reasons I like reading this type of thing and talking about it with somebody. <laughs> it's just the reason why book clubs are fun, right? It's like you talk about it, and you think, yeah, the 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 whole theory of exploration, how this is interesting. Have the entire story. Like, granted, I didn't get a chance to read it, but you you look at the everything in here is unique. That's fucking cool. So even if all you're there is you find this out, you go, okay, how much is this salamander worth if I take it back? Or I'm an alchemist and I found, what if I popped its eyes out? Would that be good for my brew? You know, even if you get like (laughs) that kind of mercenary about it, but that exploration, if you have a group that enjoys that type of thing, these bizarre monsters or crazy ass landscapes. The other thing that the Martian Odyssey reminded me of, frankly, it, it took me to like the plane of earth. You know, if I think the the weird creature building pyramids, maybe that's what Zorn does and it's home. Right. For all I know, <clears throat> you know, Zorn from the plane of Earth, it eats stuff, it does this. Maybe it comes back to the prime material plane to get gems and minerals and stuff because that's where it actually feeds. And the pyramid thing that it's doing, that's all the waste products from everything you just devoured out of your party. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So you chase the Zorn back, you come this field of pyramids, like, ah, fuck, there's 10,000 Zorns here. Right. You know, or the, the wheelbarrow creatures kind of remind me a little bit of Modrons a little bit too. They're kind of just kind of trundling along and doing their thing, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. You very know? Modrani. Right. Yeah. But it, it, if you look at some of these bizarre landscapes, even in the Lotus Eaters and such, would that be 
on another plane. You mm-hmm. think of, I think of anyway, my Call of Cthulhu games, you know, the Plateau of Leng or mm-hmm. these, the Dreamlands or whatever it might be. Anything goes in those types of places when you mm-hmm. encounter the ethereal, ethereal worlds or, um, like I said, the Dreamlands it reminds me of that because it could be wacky as shit because it's the fucking Dreamlands, man. Anything goes. Right, right. And, um, these types of things, even if you like, man, that's just weird. I don't understand that. Good. Drop that thing in the weirdest thing you've got. And the players are like, what the fuck is this? It, that could be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I think would be really interesting is to, uh, and I guess it depends on the context of the game, but you could privilege instead of finding gold, like, oh, find a sample and you bring that back and you both get rewarded materially by the wizard who needs it for a material component or studying something, but also that's you get how you get the experience point. Bringing back the sample of, um, you know, one of the lotus eaters, or you know, even getting the lo- getting an answer from the lotus eater, and then ma- making it back to civilization, right? Yeah, and that, if you if you've got a game with another type of economy, where even if you're playing Savage Worlds and there's bennies, if you've got inspiration from Five E, <coughs> excuse me, this cough is killing me. But if you get these components, where my group doesn't give a shit about experience. Well, actually, I got one guy who cares about XP, but we just ignore him and we level up. <laughs> level up is needed. Love you, Lenny, but too bad. Um, so if you're leveling up by story beat or whatever it is, you can say, look, you guys accomplished a lot. Here's your bennies. Here's your chips. Here's your hero points, whatever you're doing. This type of exploration, sometimes it doesn't net gold and it doesn't net monsters slain, but it nets information. And I love that point, Hoy. If you can, if you can mechanic... If you put a mechanic in place or reward uh, reward system so that while you're doing that, you get cool shit for it would mm-hmm. be great. And maybe you set that in the context of even with a classic D&D game, you say, okay, you said it maybe like, okay, this session I will reward XP for blah, 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 right? But this session to privilege this game, I will reward, you know, exploration and making it back with the knowledge or if you can give me a... Um, post game report that's like 250 words that summarizes you'll get extra <laughs> extra you know 500 xp or 1000 xp like what have you discovered on this mission you know um you know there's i guess there's lots of ways i mean obviously D is sort of at the same time the most clunky but also the most easy to build on because we're all so familiar with it and then obviously mm-hmm. there's other systems that are a little bit more specialized um like basic uh, basic fantasy slash call of cthulhu uh storyteller system you know, that privilege other things much more specifically fate. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. You could get, Oh, totally, man. Yeah. You got, yeah, this got a lot of different options because when you're going through exploration like this is like, how did, um, Jarvis get rewarded? He found the cure for freaking cancer, man. That's exactly. a pretty damn good thing. He gets to tell this cool story and then go, come on, get to the point. Oh yeah. You see this thing here? This is a cure for cancer. Just want to let you know I found that too. Um, <laughs> here, here's this crazy, he tells that he tells like a, like, I don't know, 150-page story, and it clunked, by the way, here's a cure for cancer. Love you. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah, mic drop, boom, out of here. We're bringing the Nobel Prize. You know, I got this. You know, and that's and that's another component, too. If you've got a person who is, <clears throat> who's gone through it and they can spin a good tale, I mean, depends how theatrical your group is. Some people mm-hmm. would be happy to be Jarvis and tell a very long story and have the, and the other players would listen to it. I've gamed with them. Um, I've gained with theater majors before, and sometimes they, <laughs> they have a blast doing that stuff. But no, I think anything um, to really help, especially with Lotus Eaters and Martian Odyssey, and um, I can't remember the one you told me, Jeff, with the uh, the unique animals. Oh, that Proteus is Island. Proteus Island. 
Yeah, Proteus Island. That's exploration into the unknown at its core. A lot of these crazy sci-fi, even the Clark Ashton Smith sci-fi I've read um, in the past, it's all really, this is crazy, weird shit, and I'm trying to ferret it out. Um, it really, I, anything you can do to reward that and keep, keep them looking, I think would be really cool. Mm-hmm. As opposed to turtling up, which is obviously the tendency a lot of times what players have to go, I don't know, I don't want to touch that, that might trigger a pit trap or something, you know. Which is and, actually one of the cool things in the Lotus Eaters, now that you mentioned that, you well, both of them, in Martian Odyssey and the Lotus Eaters, you couldn't, he couldn't stop. Jarvis couldn't go, well, I'll just sit here and wait. No, you can't. There's dream beasts. <laughs> Excuse me, dream beasts. There's real bar monsters. You're in the middle of fucking nowhere. Your radio doesn't work. Right. There's triopsies are throwing rocks at your headlights. You have to move. You can't sit here and burn the entire day talking to a plant. It's, I'm glad you think the Lotus Eaters are cool, Jeff, but we got to move. Come on, time. Let's go. Let's move. All right, throw some rocks at him because Hoy's getting mad he hasn't killed anything yet. All right, Tromsey's attack. You know. But, you, yeah, so there's <laughs> – excuse me, you're, you're getting really cool shit, but there's also enough other things to keep the story moving, yeah. which even if you don't necessarily like the story per se, like, like I said, Martian Odyssey at the highest level, I'm like, I don't like the story. Yeah. But it moves. Right. It keeps moving. Sure. You know, the- yeah, which is which is pretty powerful because I've read some other older sci-fi by other authors that just doesn't move anywhere. Well, guys, right. we really need to start wrapping up this conversation. So, Brett, uh-huh. it has been awesome uh-huh. having you on here. Thank you so thank much you. for being on the show. Well, thank you. I had a really good time. This is awesome. You know what? If this doesn't work, I'll do it a third time. Awesome. There we go. I'm in. Well, maybe we'll <laughs> pretend it doesn't work, and then we'll record it a third time, but then release both two and three. Right, there you go. <laughs> Just to <laughs> see well, how, how badly we tripled up. All right, right. Is there anything, Brett, before we go, that you, one last point that you wanted to make or anything that you wanted to let us know that was coming up that would be good for our listeners to know about? Um, Nothing too crazy. I think um, on a personal note, if you go to GamingBS.com, you can find Sean and I. Um, if you go to um, Encoded Designs or the or Kickstarter, you can see my Avalon, my Streets of Avalon Kickstarter, which was successful um, earlier this Yay. year. Thank you, and that'll uh, that stuff starts coming out in uh, June, July. We're on target, so that's really cool. Very cool. That's but nice. the le- <clears throat> but from uh, what we're talking about today, I think even some a lot of these stories are short. They're fast. You get an audiobook or you read them. I think it's worth reading a lot of the appendix end stuff because well, everything we talked about here. You look at it and you go, oh, I could see where that inspiration comes in. I can see if you read this stuff with a gamer's lens like we do, these stories become more interesting and more fruitful. You don't feel like this slog in high school. Oh, my God, I got to re-catch her eye. I can't stand this thing. You know, you're reading this with an intent. You're reading this not only hopefully for enjoyment, but even if it's not tripping your trigger um, in a literary sense, you're pulling gems out of it, right? Mm-hmm. So or, uh, you know, it. silicon ball, you know. Pyramid poop. <laughs> or, or, or pyramid poop, whatever. You know, get something out of it. <laughs> All right, Hoy. So now that our listeners know how to get a hold of Brett, how can they get a hold of us? All right. You can always drop us a note at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. Hit us on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. We're also on Facebook and MeWe. If you like the show or just want to give us some feedback, uh, please do so on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. It really helps people find us. And Jeff, you want to tell us about the, uh, tell everybody about the Patreon? Absolutely. If you go to Patreon slash Appendix and Book Club, we are live. And I would like to go ahead and thank some of our patrons, Noah Green, Eric Johnson, Ethan Schoonover, Phil Nadow, Vasily Kalaman, and Ray Otis. You guys rock. 
If you are a fan of the show and you would like to support us, then please go on over to Patreon and sign up. So coming up, episode 47 will be on Frederick Brown's Martians Go Home. And episode 48 will be on August Durlitz's Lurker at the Threshold. So we've got some cool stuff coming up. Very, very cool. See you in stacks. Read on. The library is closed.